I'd like to invite you to turn again to the uh, 14th chapter of the book of Romans, Romans 14. And uh, we're going to read through the entire chapter this morning. We've been talking about uh, this matter of being winsome Christians. Paul's emphasis from chapter 12 on is on the, uh, on the matter of authentic love, real, genuine, honest-to-goodness from the heart, Christian love. The, uh, the world ought to see about us the fragrance and the beauty of our Lord Jesus. Uh, Paul uses a metaphor that I've always appreciated. It's that of, of a fragrance, the fragrance of Christ that we leave behind. I always think of that, uh, that old advertisement for Winsong perfume. Winsong sticks in your mind. The, uh, the uh, ad said. And our, our relationship to Christ ought to leave behind that sort of aroma. Wherever we go, people ought to remember us because we, we have the fragrance of Christ. As my friend Ron Ritchie used to say, uh, I don't know who that fellow was, but he sure does remind me of the Lord Jesus. And uh, that ought to be true of us wherever we go. Being Christian is not a matter of being rigidly correct. Uh, it's a matter of loving people the way the Lord loved them. And it's this that Paul is concerned with. Early on in chapter 12, he talked about uh, the fact that love serves. And then he talks about the sincerity of love. The love is real, it's genuine. And one of the tests is that uh, we love those who don't love us. We love those that persecute us. And uh, then in chapter 13, he describes love in its submissive quality, submissive to authority. And now in chapter 14, he talks about love is tolerant. I wish I could think of another S. I couldn't think of one this morning that uh, is descriptive of the idea of tolerance. But that's what we're concerned with. Chapter 14, verse 1. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. That is, without challenging him to debate. The uh, NEB, uh, the New English uh, Bible, translates without trying to settle doubtful points. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let every man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he, who eats, uh, and he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and give thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But as for you... Why do you judge your brother? Are you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? 
For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. And every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us shall give account of himself to God. Uh, It's easy uh, at first reading to see what Paul is talking about. He's concerned with certain taboos, conventions, extra-biblical rules and regulations, no-nos. The sort of things that we describe as, as doubtful matters. Where scripture is unequivocally clear, where scripture is absolute, where truth is stated in such a way that it's unmistakable, it's sinful for us to debate those issues. Uh, Adultery is always sinful. Uh, Homosexuality is sin. Stealing is sinful. Gossip is wrong. Greed and malice and envy and jealousy and resentment are are wrong. Those are sinful things. Now, those are sins that are all taken care of in the cross, and they can be forgiven and are forgiven in Christ, but they are still sin. I saw a cartoon uh, a few months ago in Christianity Today. Two clergy wives were talking, and one said of her husband, the, the clergyman, John still believes in sin, but he's not sure what qualifies. Well, we can be sure what qualifies. Scripture tells us that certain things are clearly sinful, and where Scripture has spoken clearly, we must submit to that teaching. But there are all sorts of things, all sorts of matters about which the Bible is not clear. And it's within these areas, these so-called gray areas, that Christians disagree. Uh, A number of years ago, I heard a story about a number of European pastors that... uh, came to the United States to observe the state of the, of the church here in America. And they traveled from church to church. And as they traveled, they became more and more concerned about our worldliness, about the carnality that they saw in, in the church, the fact that we sang up-tempo songs rather than the, the old hymns of the church. And we, we didn't wear ties and coats when we came to church. We came with a rather irreverent, flippant attitude toward worship, and uh, we talked before the service began. We chatted with one another, and, and instead of sitting quietly and waiting for the, for the teaching, and they felt that we were a very irreverent bunch without a deep and profound uh, respect for God. And, and as they went from church to church, they became more and more concerned about the state of, of, our, of, of our spiritual being, and, and they, they would meet at night to pray for us. And uh, one night, as they were praying, they began to weep over because they were so sorrowful at, at our sin. And as they wept, the tears streamed down their cheeks and off the end of their cigars and into their glasses of beer. <laughs> now, if there's a point to that story, uh, I'm not sure there is, but uh, if there is a point, it's that we're all different. See, differences exist. And we have to live with those differences. The the point that Paul is going to make all the way through this passage is that differences don't really make any any difference. Now, there are a couple of issues that Paul refers to here, and uh, I don't want to go into a lot of detail because we we don't have much time to, uh, to cover all this material. But I want you to understand what was happening in Paul's day because it helps us to relate some of our own uh, some of the uh, some of our issues that we're concerned with to the problem that that Paul uh, refers to. The church in Rome was a cosmopolitan church because Rome was that way. People came from all over the Roman Empire, 
and, uh, and lived there. And they would worship in the church. There were Jews and, and Gentiles. Uh, within the Gentile world, there were vast differences. There were Gentiles from uh, with you know, all sorts of ethnic backgrounds. They came from all over the Roman Empire, from as far away as Britain and North Africa and, and all over Europe. And some came from the East. Some were very Greek in their thinking. They'd been Hellenized, as, as they say. They'd gone to, to uh, Greek universities, and they had one way of looking at reality. And then there were others that, that hadn't had the opportunity to have that education. Or they'd come from the East, and they were less sophisticated, perhaps, than, than the European uh, Gentiles. And then there were vast differences uh, even within the Jews. There were Jews that had been raised in a Greek setting, and there were Jews that came out of the East. And uh, then there were just the basic Jew and Gentile differences, just enormous cultural differences, and yet they were in one church. A lot is being said today in terms of church, church growth about homogeneous groups. They, they tell us, uh, church growth specialists tell us that homogeneous churches grow more rapidly. In other words, uh, if you have a church that's made up of middle class, only middle class, it'll grow more rapidly than a church that had all classes. Now, I understand what they're saying because churches tend to, to fall into those categories almost unconsciously, but we ought to resist that, frankly. A church ought to be heterogeneous. There ought to be representatives of all races and all cultures and all classes and all educational backgrounds, and you ought, we ought to be able to accept them all. Growth is beside the point if we grow fine. If we don't grow, you know, that's something else. But we have to do what God's called us to do, and that is love everyone from all different, uh, all types of backgrounds. And that was the situation in Rome. Now, the Jews, uh, there are two issues that Paul mentions in this, in this chapter. One is, has something to do with eating and drinking. The other has to do with the Sabbath, or the holy days, observing special days. Now, there, there are probably a couple of things that Paul had in mind when he referred to this eating and drinking issue. Here's one of them. The Jews, as you know, had, their, had a special diet. Uh, the Jews had been eating for 1,500 years a certain way. You go back into the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, uh, certain rules that were given that determined what animals they could eat, what animals they couldn't eat. You know, they could eat, uh, in terms of four-footed animals, they could eat animals that had divided hoofs and chewed the cut. Uh, if an animal had divided hoofs and didn't chew the cud like a pig, they, they, couldn't eat, they couldn't eat that animal. Or if it chewed the cud like a rabbit and it didn't have cloven hoofs, they couldn't eat that animal. So there were very uh, strict rules. They, they called it the cash root system from a word that means separation, a difference. Now that was given because Israel was ready to go into Canaan and... Uh, in Leviticus 11, it tells us precisely why those rules were given. It was to separate them from the nations. Apparently, the Canaanites ate everything, and, and there was to be a difference in God's people. And so these kashrut, these kosher rules, were, were passed down. And, and Jews, for 1,500 years, had eaten that way. And then he became Christians, and, and Jesus just swept all that away. In Mark 7, there's this clear, unequivocal statement that uh, nothing that goes into your mouth defiles you what comes out of the man. And Mark says, Jesus thus declared all things clean. And then Peter had that very graphic message. He was on top of his house, you know. And God was preparing him for a ministry to, to Gentiles. And Jews had never, you know, they didn't eat with Gentiles. And Peter had never eaten with a Gentile in his life. And God was preparing him to go preach the gospel to Cornelius and his family in, in Caesarea. So, you know, the sheet comes down with the animals. 
in the sheet. God says, kill and eat. Peter says, no, I've never eaten anything unclean. God says, don't call clean what I've called unclean. And Peter got the point that this whole dietary system, everything, had been swept away in Christ. It no longer was relevant for Christians. But there were Jews who all their life had avoided, avoided pork. And it was a major problem for them to eat a ham sandwich. You can imagine what Paul thought the first time he confronted a ham sandwich. And you can, you can picture the situation. Here you are in the church in Rome, and a young Jewish family moves into your neighborhood, and you find out they're Christians, and you invite them over to your house, and you fire up the barbecue, and uh, you get out a, uh, some pork hot dogs, and you throw them on the barbecue, and, and your Jewish friend looks at that, and he says, What is that gross thing on the grill? And he said, what, what, what do you mean? It's just, just a pork hot dog. Guy says, gag me with a spoon. I haven't eaten one of those things all my life. I'm not going to eat that thing now. What do you do? What do you do? See, do you send off to McDonald's and get a hamburger for them? Or do you, or do you force them to eat that hot dog? That was the issue that they were facing. Now, there was another matter that was, uh, we're not certain that this was Paul's concern, but it certainly was in the book of uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians had to do with meat offered to idols. It was a practice in those days to, to offer any, any animal that was to be butchered and then sold in the marketplace. It was offered first in the, in the temples to a god. Actually, the Jews did the same thing. They sacrificed their animals and then they ate them, with the exception of the whole offer, the, the whole law of the burnt offering. That was the only one that, that, that was totally consumed. The rest of them, they ate portions of the, of the animal that was sacrificed. And the Gentiles, in their pagan practice, did the same thing. They, before they would sell a cow in the market, they'd bring it down to the temple and they would sacrifice the animal, make atonement for their sin in their way, in their pagan way, and then the animal would be offered uh, for sale, the, the edible pieces of, of the animal. So if you want to, you know, in those days, if you wanted a steak, you went down to Albertson, the equivalent of the Albertsons of that day, and... And you, uh, you bought your steak, and you knew it had already been sacrificed to idols. Now, to turn this thing around, suppose you're a Jew, and Jews would probably not have a problem with this. It'd be the Gentiles who came out of that awful scene, who had been idolaters, who'd be troubled by it. So a Gentile comes to you, you invite him over for dinner, you're a Jewish Christian, and you get out a big piece of steak, and you throw that on the grill, and the Gentile looks at it and says, you're not going to eat that, are you? And you say, well, of course, it's a perfectly good piece of meat. You say, no, no, wait a minute. That thing's been offered to idols. And the Jew would say, now look, just think of how the prophets dealt with idolatry in the Old Testament. Idolatry is a very simple, a very serious thing. But idols are not. An idol is nothing. Remember how the prophets just poked fun at the idols. that They had to be nailed down to keep from falling over. What a crazy thing to put your trust in. And They ridiculed idols. They, weren't, they, they never took idols seriously. It's only idolatry that's taken seriously. So the mere fact that this good piece of meat, grade A meat, was offered to an idol. Doesn't make any difference. Forget it. Eat the thing. I said, I can't. I just can't do it. Because the minute I, I, I start to cut into that piece of steak, into my mind comes flooding all the associations of, you know, the, the idol practices, the orgies, the dancing girls, the, the, you know, all the stuff that went on in the temple, the sexual misconduct. I can't handle it. But what do you do in a situation like that? Or suppose you're a Jew who is, who is worshipped on the last day of the week on Saturday all your life, and suddenly you discover that you're in with a bunch of Christians who, who are celebrating 
the resurrection of Christ on the first day of the week. And here's this long-standing tradition of worshiping on Saturday, and now you're worshiping on Sunday. How do you handle that one? See? Particularly since the New Testament says absolutely nothing about when we should worship. There's a, there's a great deal of uh, evidence that the early church worshipped on the first day of the week. There are a couple of references in the New Testament to that fact. But it's never mandated. It's never commanded. Nowhere does it says, thou shalt worship on the first day of the week. So it's, you know, it's optional when we worship. You can worship on Wednesday night or Tuesday morning or Thursday afternoon or Sunday morning. It doesn't make any difference. See? Every day is alike. As a matter of fact, every day is a day to worship. The fact that we gather on Sunday morning is a convention. It was a historical, it's, it's historic, it goes all the way back to the early church, but it's still a convention. So the question now you see is, what do we do with all these gray areas where Christians disagree? How do we handle them? Well, let's, let's talk about some of these issues now. These were the issues in Paul's day. Well, what, what are the great issues now? Well, let's talk about the Sabbath. You know, my dear father to this day has a very difficult time going to baseball games on Sunday or or even going out in the backyard and throwing a ball around. He's too sick to do that now. But, you know, when, when, he, was, when he was well, he had a difficult time doing anything on Sunday because it had been inculcated in his mind. This is the Sabbath day. You're to keep it holy. You're not, you're not, to, you're not to do any, any work. You're not to play on Sunday. That's, that's a day to worship. Well, now, how, how do you handle that, see? Or, or what about the times when we worship? Uh, some people got real upset with us here when we, we stopped having Sunday night services. We, we went to growth groups because we felt it would be much better to go to small groups where people could encourage one another and use their gifts and support one another better than a large group. And we canceled our Sunday night service. And some people were scandalized by that. I mean, my goodness, Paul met with the church on Sunday nights, but done that way for 1,900 years. Actually, you know how churches got started meeting on Sunday night? Don Root could tell us. He's a, he knows about these things. The, the church began to, to meet on Sunday night in, in the frontier, the western frontier, on the western frontier, as an evangelistic tool, as a way of reaching unbelievers. See, they, they used to have uh, oil lamps or, or you know, kerosene lamps, and people didn't like to meet indoors because it suited everything up. And when they started using gaslight, it was just wonderful to be able to go to meetings at night because you could light the whole place and... Uh, and it didn't, uh, didn't, it didn't fog everybody out. And so the churches here in the frontier, the western part of the United States, decided, boy, what a wonderful chance to evangelize our non-Christian neighbors because they love to come to meetings that are in rooms that are lit at night. So they started having evangelistic services on Sunday night in church buildings to reach, uh, reach their non-Christian friends. This was back in the 1700s. And we've continued it on as though it's a tradition that goes all the way back to the New Testament. It's a fairly recent convention. But we have made it absolute. Now, what about, uh, here, here's the one that always people always blanch when you mention. What about alcoholic beverages? Well, what about wine and, and, and beer? Is, is that, you know, is it suitable for Christians to, uh, to, to drink anything that has any alcoholic content at all? Is that good? Is that bad? Is that sin? Is that all right? That's a tough one for a lot of people. Well, let's just think about it for a minute. Is the consumption, the mere consumption of alcohol sin? No. No, it's not. Uh, what, what the Scripture forbids is drunkenness. It's wrong to get drunk. 
But nowhere in the scripture does it say that it's a sin to drink. Jesus drank wine. So that so, so did the disciples. I've read uh, some efforts, uh, even some scholarly efforts, to, um, to, to demonstrate that what Jesus drank was grape juice. Not fermented grape juice, not wine. Had no alcoholic content. Well, whenever I read one of those reports, I always think of what Paul said in Galatians 5 by not being drunk with wine. And it's, it's the Greek word oinos, which is the same word translated all the way through the New Testament, wine. And the thought comes to me, how much grape juice do you have to drink to get drunk? I mean, you know, maybe if you drank four gallons and laid out in the hot sun all day, you know, I don't know, but... Uh, it's very clear from the Old Testament that when Israel got together to, to celebrate their feast, they drank beer. That's the word. It's the Hebrew word. They drank beer. Well, what, what are we going to say about this? See, how do we deal with this? This is something that's not absolute. Some Christians say, well, I, I, can't, I can't drink. I came out of an alcoholic family. I'm, I'm an adult child of an alcoholic. I, you know, I, don't, want, I don't have anything to do with this stuff. Others will decide because of the uh, problems that alcoholism is causing, the traffic uh, fatalities and whatnot, they may decide not to drink. Other Christians may decide it's all right to drink in moderation. See? So Christians fall in, on both sides of that issue. What about smoking? Is smoking a sin? Well, Jesus made it very clear from Mark 7 that nothing you put in your mouth defiles you. Nothing, not food or a cigar or anything. You know, it stinks up the place. You smell bad, you'll probably die early and, you know, all sorts of bad things. Uh, you say, well, it's habituating. I, I, used to be, I used to be down on people that smoked because I was an athlete. And I, my argument was always, uh, you know, it, it's habituating, it's a habit. And every time one of my friends reached for a cigarette, I reached for a fingernail. That was my habit. I bit my fingernails clear down to here. See. Now, you know, we just need to be consistent. That's all. Uh, smoking cigars, a nasty habit. Uh, please don't come to my office and smoke a cigar. But, you know, it, that's not, it's not a sin. If you want to smoke a cigar, that's your business. But if you don't want to smoke a cigar, that's your business too. See? These are issues that, where we have to decide. What about schools? What about this whole business of whether you're going to send your kid to public school or Christian school or home school? There, there are some, some Christians that feel that uh, the responsibility for raising their children uh, rests upon parents, and therefore we're going to homeschool our children. There are others that feel we don't want our children in public schools. We want to do a better job of integrating Christian truth and the disciplines that they're, that they're learning, the academic lesson, uh, disciplines, and so we're going to send them to Christian school. There are other Christians that feel you know, we abdicated in terms of the universities. We turned the universities over to secular humanists. Now we're beginning to turn the high schools and Junior highs and grade schools over to them. You know, we're going to get involved. We're going to get on, on uh, school boards, and we're going to teach in the public schools and whatnot. Which one's right? But nothing's mandated in Scripture. You have to decide. You have to make up your mind. And the point is we have to accept the person who makes the choice different, that's different from, uh, from ours. What about politics? Ooh. Ooh. Is it all right to be a, a liberal Democrat, be a Christian? I know one. <laughs> I know quite a few, as a matter of fact. Had a privilege a few years ago to meet Mark Hatfield, gracious, godly Christian man, very liberal Democrat. How can that be, you say? 
and the liberals say, well, yeah, but you conservatives, you forget that you know, we do have responsibility for the poor. See? Yeah, that, that, that you have to make up your mind. That's Paul's point. And you have, to, you have to decide, and you have to accept your brother or your sister. What about theology? That's another one where we have trouble. What about you know, all these eschatological questions? Some believe Jesus is going to come before the tribulation, some in the middle of the tribulation, some after the tribulation. Some Christians believe that there will be an earthly kingdom in Israel and Jesus will be reigning uh, there in Jerusalem. And, and others say, no, that's all fulfilled in the church, and Christians disagree. See. Now, do you understand what Paul is saying? Differences are going to exist, but differences shouldn't make any difference. We should accept one another, but not for the purposes of sinful debate. In other words, you don't accept your brother into the fellowship and then invite him over to your house in order to straighten him out. See? That's our favorite indoor sport, is straightening other Christians out. As C.S. Lewis says, there's really only one person in the world we can do very much about. It's this guy. It's me. Oh, did I learn that in a painful way one day? I, uh, some of you may know of Doc, Dr. Uh, J. Sidlow Baxter. Wonderful old uh, British gentleman. I always think of J.I. Packer's statement that a, a British gentleman is one who uses a butter knife in private. And that's Jay Sidlow Baxter. He used to dress for dinner. Stately, godly uh, scholar. A great Bible teacher. He's written dozens of books. I think I have most of his books in my library. He was a friend of my father's. And uh, uh, father invited him over to dinner one night to meet me and Carolyn. We hadn't been married too long. I think he was a freshman in seminary, and I was feeling my theological oats. And I had just read something that he had written a couple of weeks before that I disagreed with, so I decided I'd take him on. Uh, I, and looking back on it now, I realize at that stage of my life I had enough gall to be divided into three parts. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I, you know, it's ironic. I, I since have come to realize that he's right, and I, I would agree with him today. He's still living. He lives in Santa Barbara, uh, California, I believe. And so we, we entered into this somewhat uh, vigorous debate for a while. And, and after a while, he, his eyes twinkled, and he took off his glasses, and he looked at me through his eyebrows, and he said, uh, young man, he said, I have discovered that where the Spirit of God has been ambiguous, we must not be definitive. They had to get a stepladder to help me out of the chair. <laughs> You're talking small. I have never forgotten that. I have never forgotten that. Where the Spirit of God has been ambiguous, we must not be definitive. That's the bottom line, see. Where God has been clear, we can be clear. We can, where God has mandated a truth, we can believe it with assurance. It's authentic. It's a real thing. We can buy into it. Where Scripture has not been clear, we must not be dogmatic. We can be convinced on our own, and I hope you are convinced, on all of these issues that we've talked about. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But we've got to accept one another. You see, that, that's, that's Paul's word. Accept the one who is weak in faith. And it's interesting that, that this person who, who has trouble, who has a lot of scruples, a lot of rules and regulations to rule his or her, her life, 
are described as weak in faith. That is, they, they have not yet progressed to the point that they believe that the world is theirs to enjoy. There's only one tree in the garden, not a whole bunch of trees. When it comes right down to it, there are very few absolute rules. The world is ours to enjoy. And the person who is strong in faith understands that. The person who is weak in faith has a lot of rules and regulations to try to control his, his life or her life. I had a prof in seminary who said one day, he was talking about, we were talking about ethics, and, and he, his, uh, his rule is what he called the dirty shirt rule. He said, I took a shirt into my mother one time and asked her whether it was dirty or not. She said, if it's doubtful, it's dirty. And that became an ethical principle for him. If something is doubtful, then it's dirty. And, and I remember when I heard that, it, it just didn't ring true to me. I just felt uncomfortable with that because the truth is, is that the whole world is ours to enjoy. And if, and if I don't absolutely know that something is wrong, then it's right. Everything is right unless I know it's wrong. And we have a tendency to turn that thing around. Everything is wrong unless I know it's right. See? So that we ought to be able to live with abandon. Live in confidence in God's ability to straighten us out if we're wrong, rather than circumscribe our lives with, with a lot of rules, a lot of regulations. Some people would say that the sign gifts, the gifts are here and in existence today. And others would say, no, that the current phenomena that we describe as, as the gift of tongues, the gift of healings, is for, was for the first century and it doesn't exactly follow the specs in the New Testament, and we're going to disagree over these things. But can we accept one another, but not for the purposes of debate, trying to straighten each other, straighten each other up? All right, enough of that. It's too convicting. Uh, the reasons follow verses 4 through 12. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Puts too much stress on a relationship to try to change people all the time. And the reason we shouldn't try to change them is because they're not accountable to me. Do you see that? I'm not their Lord. The Lord himself paid the price to be their judge. Paul puts it clearly. He died for them. He lived again for them so he could be the Lord of the living and the dead. By the way, just as a side note, that struck me this time as I read it. The living of the Lord of the dead. I thought of. Those of us that have loved ones that have gone on to be with the Lord, he's their Lord today. Just that pregnant phrase, the Lord of the dead, is so encouraging. He lived for them. He died for them. He purchased them with his own blood. They belong to him. They don't belong to me. I don't have to change them. That's so freeing to know I don't have to change anybody. I tried for 10 years to change my wife. I made a project out of her. She still didn't put things away. You know, she, her desk is always a mess. And it used to frustrate me. What? I'd try to clean up for it. She, that somehow that didn't help, you know. Didn't like that. <laughs> Kept wanting to change her. Until I realized that, you know, it's not my job to change Carolyn. It's God's job. She belongs to him. I can relax and enjoy her just the way she is. So we're different. I'm all, you know, she, the, the difference is she can always find things. She knows exactly what pile it's in. I have this very, I have this terrific filing system. I can never find anything. <laughs> we're all, we're just, you're different. We're different. So as Paul's saying, just, the differences just don't make any difference. And furthermore, God's the one who, who's going to, who's going to judge them. They live out their life for the Lord. 
we live our lives for the Lord. One of these days, we're all going to stand before Him. This is not a judgment with a view to condemnation when He says we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. This is the accounting that we will give to a father. And then Paul says, they're, they're, your brother's going to have to answer to God at that point. And there's a sort of little finger that comes up out of the text and points right at me and says, and so will you. <laughs> so will you. Each one of us shall give account of himself to God. I was struck in reading through this again this week that there's a second reason that, that we shouldn't judge a brother, and that is that we don't see their heart. God sees their heart. He sees their motivation. Some of the things that people do, though they seem so wrong, are done for all the right reasons. They're done out of a deep sense of love for God. A number of years ago, I was in Israel with a tour, uh, and uh, it was the first time I'd been there. I went down to Bethlehem, and I was, uh, I was so uh, irritated by the embellishments to the places, you know, the historic places that that we know from the Bible, the place of Jesus' birth, for example, and the shepherd's field. And, the, and then you go to Jerusalem, the place of where he was uh, tried, and then the burial site and the crucifixion site. And everything is embellished with silver and gold and bells and whistles and candles and tapestries. And To me, it's just ugly. And I was really bent out of shape. And I, I was talking to Bruce Walkie about it, who happened to be with us, and he said, no, you don't understand. You understand. He said, here in the West, we like things the way they are. We don't want them, we don't want them to be disturbed. We want to go back and look at Custer's last stand and view it as it was. With just the field there without any markers. But in the East, their way of showing devotion to Christ is to embellish everything, to put gold leaf on it and cover it with silver and hang, hang lanterns over it. That's their way. And what God sees is the heart. That's why Paul says in another place, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. Because he's the one who sees the secret motivations of the heart. And then Paul says an interesting thing. Then shall every man receive his, what? Praise. In other words, the chances are that what the person did was done for the right reasons rather than the wrong reasons. And he'll, he or she will receive praise from God. So we just need to let God judge people's hearts. I remember years ago when I was at PBC, some of you will remember that, there was a young woman who had been saved out of a, a, a horrific background. She had been a nightclub singer. She was a, a country western singer. and you know, Had traveled with a rock band for a while and done a lot of drugs, and she was just a mess. And came to the Lord, was a Christian for a few months, and a beautiful singing voice. And uh, one Sunday night, we had a body life service, we called it, where anyone could get up and sing and share and pray and teach from a passage. And, and this dear young woman got up, and she had come prepared to sing, so she wore a dress that she normally wore on stage when she was, when she was a singer, and it was real tight and real revealing. And she got up and just belted out this uh, hymn. It was one of the old hymns of the church, like, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and she just belted it out. And afterwards, some dear old saint just nailed her to the wall. And she broke down and began to weep. Because in her heart, she was doing that for God. 
Oh, yes, you know, it wasn't particularly appropriate for a worship service, but in her heart, she was doing it for God. God saw her heart. What we saw was uh, the external thing. And that's what Paul wants us to understand. We can't judge another because we cannot know their heart. All have to give an account to God, our brother, ourselves. So get off their back and get on their team. That's what Paul is saying. Now let's, let's read the concluding verses. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this. Interesting play on words. Let's don't uh, judge one another. Let's judge ourselves. He uses the same word that's translated determine here. That's translated judge earlier in the, in the verse. Let us not criticize one another. Be a critic of yourself. What should you decide? Not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. That's uh, in some indication of the worth of a human being. This is a person for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. It always reminds me of what my father used to say. Any jackass can kick a barn down takes a craftsman to build one. And that's what Paul is saying. Anyone can destroy things. It takes a craftsman to build. So let's pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith you have, that is the firm conviction, which is the antithesis of being self-condemned. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. In other words, he has an untroubled conscience. But he who doubts is condemned. He contracts a sense of guilt. Even though what he's doing is not sinful, if he or she thinks it's sinful, then he's acting against conscience and and he incurs real guilt. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. My time is gone. I just want to leave you with two statements. Number one, be convinced. Be absolutely convinced in your own mind what God wants you to do. You know, the problem is that most of us don't think. Whatever our mother taught us, whatever we learned in the last uh, Episcopal Baptarian Church of Chiggerville, Texas, that's what we, you know, that's what we believe. We don't think. Preacher announced his text, I'm going to talk about ignorance and apathy. And, and a woman turned to her husband and said, what did he say? And he said, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> and, and, and I'm afraid that some of us are like that. We don't know, we don't care. Find out. Find out. Study the word on your own. Don't believe it just because your mother told you it was true. I don't care how nice your mother was. You find out for yourself. What you believe. Be fully convinced. And then second, be conciliatory. Be conciliatory. In other words, if, 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 
Exercising your freedom is going to lead your brother into sin. Don't do it. I would never take my father to a baseball game on Sunday afternoon. I am perfectly free to do that. But I would never force him to do that. Because for him, that would be sin. Don't, don't, don't push other people into sin. You ever try to cross the swinging bridge down here on, across the uh, North Fork of the Payette? I was down there with Randy one time. He got on that thing, which ran across it. He gets about halfway across and says, come on, Dad, come on, Dad. You know, and I was standing there, my knees were quaking. and he, You know, he was back dragging me, trying to pull me. That's the, that's the sort of thing we shouldn't do. You may be able to free to do a thing, but your brother can't. So don't force him. Don't force him. That's what Paul is saying. Don't cause your brother to stumble. And then, secondly, Paul says there are greater issues than merely eating or drinking. The, the greatest issue is that of building the kingdom of God, seeing people grow. What matters is righteousness and peace and growth in grace. And if the exercise of your freedom is going to curtail that process, don't do it. It isn't worth it. If your use of alcoholic beverages is turning somebody off in your family so that they don't listen to you, then don't do it. You can do it without it. You don't have to have it. That's Paul's point. You see, that's just simply a matter of, of operating in love. You say, well, you know, that's, that's not right. You know, you, what will happen is the legalists will just take over the church. No, they won't. I believe what we ought to do in a situation like that. This is the sort of thing I say to the interns. are going out to small communities. We're drinking, for example, may be a real problem to the Christians in that community. I tell them, teach freedom, but don't exercise the freedom you have. Because what will happen is you'll, you'll lose the right to be heard. They won't hear you anymore. They won't listen to you. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Now, there are times that Paul made an issue of freedom because the purity of the gospel was at stake, and, and I would never expect any of us to do that. There are times we need to take a stand. But uh, where it's simply a matter of winning the right to be heard, then we, we need to be willing to give away our freedom. We're so free, we don't have to be free. That's the point. Don't have to have it. We have God. And that's all we need. It's God alone. The, the, the important thing, and I, I want to leave this with you, is Paul's statement that, uh, the, the, the important thing is righteousness and peace and joy. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy. That's what we're working for. A right standard of conduct before God, peace within the church, and real joy. These are matters of the Spirit. You, all of you know I'm a George MacDonald freak, and I, I just want to read one paragraph from a, a story I came across. I don't have time to read the whole thing, but it rector moves into, into town, new pastor, old church, and he's going around meeting his parishioners, and uh, he walks into the house, and this old fellow's puffing on his pipe, and and the old fellow asked him, how do you feel about smoking a pipe? And uh, he says, well, it doesn't bother me. And he said, well, I just asked because the, the prior uh, pastor had a real problem with it. Uh, and he says, for uh, I, I see the parson that's gone didn't like it, as I could tell when he came in at the door and me a smoking. Not as he said anything, for you see, I was an old man, and I dare say that kept him quiet. But I did hear him blow up a young chap in the village the other day when he came upon him with a pipe in his mouth. He did give him a thundering broadside. So I was in two minds whether I ought to go on with my pipe or not. 
And how'd you settle the question, Rogers? The, the pastor asked. Why, I followed my own chart, sir. Quite right. One mustn't mind too much what other people think. That's not what I meant, sir. What do you mean, then? I'd like to know. Well, sir, I mean that I said to myself, Now, old Rogers, what do you think the Lord would say about this here backy business? And what did you think he would say? Why, sir, I thought he would say, Old Rogers, have your tobacco. Only mind you don't grumble when you ain't got none. That's why I like McDonald. He just has a way of, of stating things so succinctly. You see, it's not the tobacco. It's the heart. It's the heart. Let's pray. Will you stand, please, with me? <clears throat> Father, there's so much of Scripture about which we are at loose ends. We simply do not know all there is to know about these passages, and we never will until we see you. We know in part. Help us, Lord, to remember that that's true and to maintain a spirit of humility and to be agnostic about those things which you have not specified. Lord, we ask for a firmness of conviction about those things that, that are clear, clearly stated, unequivocally stated in Scripture. These are the things that we must submit to. But in those areas uh, where you've not been specific, Lord, we, we, want to, we want to make up our own minds and we want to live with one another in a spirit of acceptance and love and tolerance because we know love is tolerant. So, Lord, help us to put aside the differences that have made a difference in the past and to live with one another in authentic love. We ask in Jesus' name.